Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. Today's guest is John Huth. John is a Harvard physics professor, a paddler, and author of the book, The Lost Art of Finding Your Way. John and I had a fascinating conversation about his different view of navigation using the world around us, what inspired him to write the book, and how it can benefit you. So before we get to our chat with John, James and Simon at OnlineSeaKayaking.com continue to produce great content to help you evolve as a paddler and now as a coach. If you're not already a subscriber to OnlineSeaKayaking.com, here is your opportunity to get started. Visit OnlineSeaKayaking.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout and you'll get 10% off up to 12 months of your subscription investment. As well, Level 6 continues to be a great supporter of Paddling the Blue, and we have a special offer just for you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 drywear or other fun kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your order there as well. And thank you to everyone who has taken the time to donate a little bit to Paddling the Blue to help keep the show running. I really appreciate your support. So if you like what you hear and you want to send a little love our way, visit www.paddlingtheblue.com and click the Buy Me a Coffee link at the bottom of the page. And I appreciate your support. So with that, enjoy today's episode with John Huth. Hi, John. Welcome to Paddling the Blue. Thank you, John. I appreciate you joining me today. Pleasure. So navigation is a critical piece of sea kayaking success and a particular passion of yours as well. So tell us about your interest in navigation without an electronic device. Well, it started as an accident at some level. Uh, I was going to paddle in Maine, off the coast of Maine, and I'd rented a kayak, uh, which was a basically a recreational kayak, and paddled around an island called Little Cranberry. And I was crossing a large embayment that was about two miles across. I hadn't given it much thought, but all of a sudden a very thick fog rolled in. And I realized that I was going to get in trouble if I couldn't maintain my direction. So I very rapidly tried to pay attention to my surroundings. I asked myself, which way is the wind blowing coming from the southeast? Which way is the swell coming? There was a swell out of the southwest. What could I hear? And I could hear waves crashing on this beach that was to my north. And as the water receded, there was this grinding noise that the receding water made. And I used those to keep my directionality correct. And I knew if I paddled for 20 minutes, about a mile, I would reach a zone, um, some shoals, where the waves were crashing in opposite directions. So I just said to myself, if I can make it to those shoals and the waves are crashing in opposite directions, I'm good to go and then I could turn north. So I turned north and I noticed that the lobstermen dropped their traps only so close to land because of the tides. And I even noticed the tides were coming in so there were little uh, wakes behind the uh, lobster buoys. I could follow those and use those as a directional information and made it back without a problem. So that was an accident, but kind of solved it on the fly, if you like. Sure. Then rewind about, I guess, three months later. It was Columbus Day weekend, 2003. And I went out on my recreational kayak, um, Nantucket Sound, where my house is on Cape Cod. 
and uh, paddled and I had gotten into the habit of paying attention to the wind direction and the waves and all that sort of thing. It was a sunny day and thought nothing of it really. Paddled for half an hour and then fog rolled in, but this time I was mentally prepared for it. There was kind of less, less of a panicky feeling, if you like. So I just paddled along in the fog and any time that the fog closed out sight of land, I could just turn north, bump into land and handrailed myself back home. And um, it was fun, actually. I pulled it up, took a shower, we went to a movie, had dinner, and uh, that was a wrap for the day. The next morning I went out paddling, it was sunny. The harbor master was out in his boat and pulled up next to me and asked if I'd seen two young women kayaking. And I said, no, I hadn't. And it turned out that about a half a mile down the beach when I'd launched the day before, in the sunny day, there were two young women who aged 19 and 20 who launched and they got lost in the fog. What happened was their boyfriends were standing on the beach and they should have returned in about 45 minutes. They didn't and unbeknownst to me that night, anything that floated was out in the water trying to look for them but nobody found them. Uh, later, let's see, that day when the harbor master stopped me, they found their kayaks tied together. It's quite some distance out into Nantucket Sound. The day after that, they found the body of one of the young women, and they never recovered the body of the other. So what happened was I, I got a case of what psychologists call survivor's guilt, because I was doing the exact same thing at the exact same time in almost the exact same place, and I was fine. I yeah. was actually having fun. And uh, the first question you ask in that sort of situation is why, but the ocean doesn't answer the why, it's just something happened. And I got obsessed with navigation without instruments, so I started to memorize the positions of stars in the sky and develop my own schema for navigating using wind that I already had used, waves, stars in the sky, position of sun in the sky, the moon, you name it. And I got fairly good at it. And then I found that I wasn't unique in finding these <laughs> skills, but this is something that, that over, you know, millennia people had used to find their way because the modern GPS and instruments were just something that hadn't been around for most of human history. And uh, all sorts of cultures solved this problem in various ways. So I started to delve into how Polynesians navigated and how the Norse navigated across the North Atlantic. So that was my start. All right. So a combination of uh, personal experience with some situational awareness and tragedy led you to the lost art of finding our way. Yeah, that's that's a good characterization, yes. So uh, the lost art of... Lost Art of Finding Our Way, uh, your book. What does the book explore? Well, it's everything that I had learned and then some because I wanted to learn more, for example, about the art of wave piloting in the Pacific Islands. Really, the, the book started out as a course that I taught. I was on sabbatical one year and wanted to do something a little different. And I thought, well, if I could learn this, uh, I could teach it to somebody else. And I think the root of this if I can say so, is that after a year of developing these skills, I looked at the world differently. I think that we're sometimes so buried in our cell phones, and I'm 
often guilty of this myself, but the world is incredibly rich. And I think what's happened is we've put barriers between ourselves and the world. And so this active engagement in navigation in the world around me was something that really made me look at the world differently. And I thought then after I dropped off my sabbatical, maybe I could teach this in such a way that I could impart to other people this heightened sense of awareness of the world around them, if that makes any sense. Sure. So I started out as a course, but there's no text for it. So I started writing notes, turned it into a book. That's where it came from. Okay. Now, when you say you started looking at the world differently, how, how, do you, how would you say that? Uh, all, all the details associated with the navigation uh, were things that I noticed, like the height of the sun in the sky. I could, if, it, if it's sunny out, I could look at the arc of the direction of the sunset. I could tell time by putting up my hand, I don't know, within two hours of sunset, and I could basically figure out how soon would the sunset happen. Other other odd tricks, there's a flat earth conspiracy people floating around, and so I came up with how many ways could I prove that the earth is a sphere, <laughs> and, and uh, that was fun. It, it's kind of a never-ending, it was a never-ending gift that I keep learning new stuff about the world around me, and uh, often informed by other people, mind you, but it, it really heighten my awareness. There's all this stuff right around you, you know, at the end of your, your nose. You don't have to build a particle accelerator to do science, I guess. So you're telling me that we, we are not going to be able to paddle off the edge of the earth? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I, can even, I can even give you a fun trick that you can do to measure the radius of curvature of the earth by looking at the sunset. Well, what is that trick? It's, it's called the jump up trick. Um, you have to have a good view to the west where the horizon is on the water so you have flat water and you have to have no clouds in the distance so you can actually see the whole sunset so there does have to be good conditions but if you lie flat with your face as close to the water as possible you see the sun setting so you see the upper limb the top bit of the sun it goes away as it crosses the horizon and then you jump up, and after you jump up, you'll see the sun reappear, at least the top of the sun reappear. And you can then count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. And by knowing your height, and by knowing how long it takes to count before the sun sets before your eyes a second time, you can calculate the radius of curvature of the Earth. All right, I will have to try that. It's a good trick. Oh. <laughs> Very neat. Now, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Polynesian waves, um, wave reading, did you say? Wave piloting? Yeah, actually the Marshall Islands, uh, which are technically not part of Polynesia, but really Micronesia. So tell us a little bit about what, what is that? The traditional navigators in the Marshall Islands would use waves that reflect off of islands and atolls, uh, refract around islands and atolls, and they form patterns that allow you to navigate from one place to the other. It's their primary mechanism of navigation. They supplement it with stars, but as I'll often point out, you may not see stars when there's cloud cover or the sun might be out. So their primary means of navigation is, is being able to read the waves in some way to find their way from one atoll to another. 
So in reading the waves, how would you read them? Well, the uh, one example, and this is kind of an interesting challenge. One of the traditional navigators was trying to point out to a, a colleague of mine who's an anthropologist, reflected waves from an atoll. So the reflections are going to be traveling in the opposite direction some of the time from the incoming swell and sometimes appears as a smaller perturbation or smaller reflected wave on top of the larger swell. So you can usually infer the direction of land by looking at those reflections. That's, that's just one example. Another example is if you are in the lee of the island, you'll sometimes lose the primary swell. Let's say there's a trade wind swell that's coming from the east and you're sailing in some direction and all of a sudden the trade wind swell goes away, you know that there's an island to your east and you can sail east until you bump into the island. That's, that's another example. Now, how far away could you be from an island and still read that wave with reliability? Uh, typically, you can be, this works up to about 50 miles uh, there's also another thing that we discovered when we were doing navigation between two atolls at somewhat larger distance because there is this, this extinction. It's a little challenging to describe, but there's this phenomenon called drillib, and it's, a path, it's described as a pathway of um, bumpiness, for lack of a better word, that connects islands. And what, what I found is it has to do, again, a little bit with the extinction of waves. But in this case, you kind of, kind of ride the crests of the waves, particularly from the trade wind swell between two islands. And that you could probably do over the span of about 100 miles. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and, and there's another example of this in a voyage of the Hukulea, which was designed to validate this concept of willful voyaging now of the Polynesians by the Polynesian Voyaging Society. And one of the Micronesian voyagers was actually invited to be the uh, navigator, Mal Piailug, and uh, there was a southern swell. You can get very large swells from both the North Pacific and the Southern Ocean, which is broadly speaking, you know, the, the part of the ocean that's below Hawaii and I mean, below um, Australia. And he was trying to figure out where he was relative to Tahiti. And he noticed that he could find his latitude by raising his hand and looking at the altitude of stars above the horizon. So that gave him a latitude. And he noticed that the swell from the Southern Ocean was extinguished so he figured out that he, the well waves from the Southern Ocean were being extinguished by the Tuamoto archipelago. So that then indicated that Tahiti was to his southwest. So he altered course to the southwest. So he was able to find a latitude and a longitude by combining these tricks. And, and today we have to figure, out, figure that out by GPS. Yeah, although, <laughs> although there's still there's the Polynesian Voyaging Society trains navigators using these skills. So it's not completely lost, yeah. let's say. All right. So what would you say the most, uh, most fascinating navigational method was that you came up with when doing research for the book? Well, one, one that is still curious, and I don't know if it really 
existed, but it's the so-called Viking sunstone. And uh, the sky, the blue sky, is polarized because what happens is the blue in the sky is caused by a single scattering of light from the sun off of an air molecule, which tends to peak in the blue. But at 90 degrees with respect to the sun, the light that you see scattered off those air molecules is 100% polarized, and the degree of polarization depends on how close to the sun you're seeing that. There is a crystal called calcite, also known as Icelandic spar, that breaks light into two components. And there are these, there is this saga where a king puts a sunstone up in the sky, gazes into it, and is able to find his way. Uh, so that, that's fascinating that they might have used the sunstone. There's no real ironclad evidence, but I found that rather fascinating. And I should also note that ants, there's a desert ant called Cataglyphus that navigates using, we know that they navigate using the polarization of the sky, and they also count their footsteps. Now, how do we determine if they're, how, how do you know if an ant is counting? <laughs> this, is, this is okay well bear with me then so i i wondered exactly the same thing and I, I i talked with the person who's kind of the 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 granddaddy of studying this ant cataglyphus and their ability to navigate and i was having lunch with him and i said how did you figure out they count their footsteps so it turns out what they did was in some cases this is going to sound a little gruesome, but they cut off their legs to make their legs shorter, not cut them off all the way, but they trimmed them to make them shorter. I said, okay, I, I get that. But then they put on stilts. They glued stilts under their legs to make them longer. And I said, so how did you do that? And so they had this little, I don't know, harness or something that they put the ants in and they glued these stilts on in about five minutes. So the ants with the stilts on when they learned how to go from their colony to a food supply, if the they had the stilts on, they went further. And if they had their legs clipped, they went shorter. <laughs> and they were able to reproduce this. So it was kind of fascinating. Wow. So these methods that you're talking about, the, um, the wave reading and the, the sunstone, these, these are hundreds, if not more than thousands of years ago. Yeah, the... The Micronesians, we know from archaeological evidence, sailed there roughly 0 AD. So that, that kind of dates that culture of navigation. And we know that the ancestors of the Polynesians, the Lapita culture, started making voyages out of sight of land around 1500 BC, roughly speaking. So that, that gives you a date for these rather major navigational feats. It's amazing that the science was available at the time to determine all this. Yeah, well, it's it's one of the things that I'm fond of saying is that, you know, they might not have called it science at the time, but it was kind of an empirical framework to hang their observations on. And so it, it's science-like in a sense. Okay. And that was, I guess, one of the things that I developed was I had, normally I'm a particle physicist, but I, I kind of developed the same empirical framework to hang observations on, which is perhaps why I ended up seeing the world differently, because everything started to fit into this framework, if that makes any sense. Now, you mentioned a particle physicist. So tell us about your, your day, day role. <laughs> My day job. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I work at a large 
accelerator in Geneva, Switzerland called the Large Hadron Collider. We collide protons together at the highest energies ever done on uh, experiments and we make new forms of matter and observe them and in 2012 we made a major discovery of a particle called the Higgs boson which its interactions with matter impart mass to matter and furthermore has a very odd property that the entire space, all of space is filled with a non-zero field associated with this Higgs which to this day still blows my mind I suppose and uh, that, so that was a major discovery, but we're still looking for new discoveries like what, what's dark matter out there and what's dark energy and kind of connecting cosmology, astrophysics to what we do in the laboratory. I can, uh, I can honestly say I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I quickly, when people ask at cocktail parties, their eyes quickly glaze over, so I sort of try to try to steer away from that. But you asked, so there you go. <laughs> it sounds fascinating, though. It really does. And, uh, and that's, that scientific background certainly gives you the basis for being able to, uh, to, to put together the book and, and to do the research. So. Mm. Yeah, I, it does help. But yeah. it, it's a nice diversion, too, because it's going from phenomena that are remote to most people and require expensive, big apparatus it's measuring stuff that's very, 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 very short distances to something that's human scale. So your side project of navigation turned into a class. So tell us a little bit about that class. So after my self-imposed project of trying to do non-instrument navigation, as I said, I was looking at the world differently. And then I thought, perhaps this can be taught. So if I teach these skills to somebody else, maybe at the end of the day, they'll be looking at the world differently. And also, it's an excuse to teach a bunch of science and sneak the science into the <laughs> uh, navigation, I suppose. All right. So I developed the course. It has uh, a teaching component, but the problems that they have to do are problems that involve going out into the world, their immediate environment, doing things. Navigating with a compass, counting their paces, looking at the polarized blue sky, memorizing the position of major navigational stars, and then we take them up for a quiz on the roof of the Science Center at Harvard, and they have to identify major navigational stars, maybe up to about 20 or so, and also predict how they're going to move over the course of the night. And uh, that is actually one of the most gratifying parts of the course, because here they've been spending this time memorizing the star positions, and it's like an epiphany for them. It doesn't happen to everybody, but it's like, oh my God, I'm seeing the sky for the first <laughs> time, and and it's amazing because people don't look up at the sky. You know, they don't they don't look up. They don't say, oh, you know, there's Orion. Oh, there's Sirius. There's Betelgeuse. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, when we look up, we just see stars, but we don't necessarily see the patterns and see what's happening with those and, and how we can use that. Yeah. I mean, for me, after doing this, I, I was the same before I started this work that I do in navigation, but now I can look up at the sky and I can tell you what time it is and orient myself and uh, all sorts of things. Sometimes I'd go to music festivals and stay up all night playing banjo or other, other circumstances in which I could actually use the, the stars as a clock. Okay. So, yeah. 
Wow. So you know, without giving away the content of the book, um, th these are techniques that people would learn in the book. Yep. Okay. Exactly the point. The book was intended to be the text for the class, but I also wanted to write it so that most people could just pick it up and read it. So it was not too technical. Um, without giving away that content, are there other ideas or other techniques that you think uh, listeners could put into action that you could tell us about? Well, the, the wind direction is one. Uh, obviously, if the wind is blowing in a certain direction at a moment, it may, it may shift, of course, but that wind tends to be fairly steady, at least over the course of an hour or so. Uh, another trick might be the wind direction can get embedded into the snow. So you can get little waves that get created as wind blows over the snow, and those waves are perpendicular to the wind direction. So you could use the, the waves in the snow as a way of finding directionality. The, the sun in the sky, a lot of times, the height of the sun in the sky, if you're living in the northern or the southern hemisphere where the sun doesn't go directly overhead, you can usually use the, the time of day and the sun position to orient yourself. The horns of the moon, so if you have a, have a crescent moon, you could take your arm and swing it across the points of the crescent moon and then swing it down to the horizon and that will give you uh, due south, if you're in the northern hemisphere, for example. So those are all a few little tricks of the trade, as it were. So that last one, I'm, I'm trying to trying to visualize that one. Okay. So crescent moon. You can vi mm -hmm. visualize a crescent moon, right? Right. Okay. So there are two points on the crescent moon. Understood. Okay. And so you can point at those two peaks on the crescent moon and sort of swing your fingers across them and then just swing your arm down towards the horizon and when you're as you just try to keep it moving in the same direction as those two points in the crescent and when your hand or finger intersects the horizon that's due south wow all right i will definitely try that the next time there's a crescent moon <laughs> yeah give it a shot thank you so i hear a side interest of yours or another side interest of yours relates to how birds navigate yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a fascination, I should say. So we, we know birds navigate, by, some birds navigate by looking at the stars, and then you might ask, how do we know that? <laughs> but you can ask that. And then another one is we think that they navigate using the Earth's magnetic field, which is truly remarkable because if... I mean, we, we use compasses, but if you've ever made a compass by hand, uh, you realize that the Earth's magnetic field is quite weak. It's, it's challenging to make a compass from scratch. I, I've done it. I've made a dry card compass using a, a brass plate and a needle, and you have to be really careful to make that, that bearing ultra-sharp. And that's because the Earth's magnetic field is so weak that any little friction between the compass card and this needle that it's sitting on top of will just not allow it to rotate properly in the Earth's magnetic field. So it's weak. So the idea that birds can sense the Earth's magnetic field is remarkable, that there's like some molecule or something in their beaks that allow them to do that. And that just, that just boggles my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. So how do we know that birds navigate by stars? 
Well, yeah, I wonder, whenever I hear about these things, I wonder, how do, how do they know that? So apparently uh, they release stars in a planetarium. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, basically the birds would, depend, they, they'd move the position of the stars in the planetarium, and depending on which way they moved the stars, the birds would fly in a different direction. Huh. So that, that's, how they, that's how they did it. All right, all right. So tell us about you as a sea kayaker. Um, well, I don't know. It's, uh, I, 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 as I mentioned, I, my house is right on Nantucket Sound. I kind of got into it by the back door. I actually started out fly fishing off of a jetty, and one year I got skunked. I didn't get anything, and so I was just out there waving that fly rod around, and it felt almost futile. <laughs> but there were two two guys, I don't know, maybe 20 years old or something like that, they had a recreational kayak and uh, some fishing rods, and they went out to an area that was just outside of my casting distance. And they came back and had a bunch of bluefish in the, in the bottom of their boat. And I said, okay, that's <laughs> what I need to do. So I got a recreational kayak and went out with my fly rod and was able to find some really productive fishing spots. And so that got me into sea kayaking. And then I upgraded after that, that accident, and I upgraded to an honest to God sea kayak with gear and started paddling a lot. And I fell in with some friends on the main island coast and uh, we got together and we would put camping gear and basically paddle out to islands and camp out and uh, the rest is history. Now, I recently interviewed Dan Carr, and yep. uh, Dan shared a trip where you and he were surprised with lobster after a meal mishap. So, <laughs> Yeah, that was great. Yeah, Dan, Dan, Dan's one of my regular sea kayak buddies, and in fact, we're, every time that winter hits, we get a little restless, and it's time to plan one of the trips when uh, summer's about. So we, uh, at this very moment, we're kicking around ideas for trips off the coast of Maine. So how about sharing one of your favorite adventures? That was one of his. Uh, one of his. Ah, oh, I have a great one. So we were paddling in the down east coast of Maine, as most people may or may not know, but the coast of Maine kind of swings east-west as opposed to mm -hmm. north-south. So that's why they call it down. So down east Maine is where you're starting to get up near New Brunswick. So we were paddling out of a town called Jonesport and got to an island called Ram Island and set up our camping gear and we're camping and we decided to walk around the island. And it was it was overcast day, but not hugely so. And we came across a string that went up into the sky, a taut string going up into the sky. I am not hmm. kidding you. Okay. So what, what could this be? So I started pulling on it and pulling on it and basically something was coming down, but it was a taut string. So, you know, I kept pulling and pulling and the, the string started to spool up in a pile underneath me. And after, I don't know, five, 10 minutes of pulling on the string, all of a sudden a kite emerged out of the clouds. <laughs> so, so there was a kite where the string was caught in the rocks and the kite was high up into the cloud so you couldn't see it. But 
you're just stumbling on it. There was a string that went up in the sky. Yeah. It was crazy. So that was, <laughs> that was, uh, and how it got there, I, we have no clue, but that was, that was <laughs> one of the more memorable events of, of kayaking with Dan. I could see. You mentioned Cape Cod, and I have not really had a chance to talk to folks uh, from that area. So do you have a favorite paddle there that you'd like to share with us? One which was amazing was the circumnavigation of something called Monomoy. Uh, Monomoy, depending on what's happened with winter storms, can be a peninsula or it can be two islands or it can be a large island. Uh, it has a very large bird preserve on it. One year, quite some time ago, I did a circumnavigation. Cape Cod is fairly heavily populated, particularly in the summertime. But the tip of Monomoy, which as I mentioned is, is a bird refuge, is uninhabited. And so you get to the tip, which is about eight miles away from the rest of Cape Cod, and all the features look really tiny. So something that might look like a large water tower when you're right up close to it, turns into this tiny uh, water tower. And there's some strange characteristic associated with waves crashing there where there's the, the, the character of the air and the sky looks weird and different. I can't really describe it. And then there, there are areas where the birds go to breed and, and it's just thick with breeding birds. It's crazy. You, you paddle up. You'll see seals paddle, seals swimming underneath you. You'll see um, schools of striped bass just going swimming right under your kayak. Uh, of course, this comes with a bit of an interesting danger of great white sharks, but I've never um, run into one personally. Uh, but every summer you hear tales of sightings of great white sharks. But Monomoy is is really an adventure to go see, and and you don't have to go all the way around the southern tip. You can just paddle out from the town of Chatham and you can get to the zones where you see a lot of seals and birds and that kind of thing. All right. Well, I will put some uh, links to the show notes to that area. I'll collect that from you offline and then uh, we can have people have the opportunity to check that out. The, there's another place close by which is a little more accessible. It's called the Herring River and it's close to the border between the town of Harwich and Dennis. And if you paddle up, there's this beautiful swampy estuary where the tide goes in and out. And it's also filled with tons of birds. And it's a little easier paddle. You don't need a sea kayak. You can use a recreational kayak to paddle there. And that's, that's also a great go-to place that I've shown to Dan. And he really enjoyed it. All right. Well, I will uh, include both of those then. So skipping back to the book for just a moment, where can someone find The Lost Art of Finding Our Way? Amazon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, it was, it was funny. Yeah, Amazon, Amazon's a good place to get it. Um, a lot of, a lot of bookstores, some of the bookstores that have outdoor stuff, outdoorsy stuff have it. I was rather shocked because it was published in 2013 and it seems to stick around. I was talking to a a scientist who was visiting Harvard, there's a bookstore at Harvard called The Coop, which is run by Harvard, and you know you get textbooks in one area, but then it's very popular with people who are visiting Harvard. And he, he was visiting Harvard, and I bumped into him, and he said, I saw your book, and it was on display. You know how sometimes you have bookstores, you just yeah. see the, the edge of the book? Mm -hmm. But somebody had thought enough of the book to turn it 
so that the whole front face was kind of out there on display. And so, I, and this is many years since it got published. So I was happy to hear that. Yeah, definitely. How can listeners reach you and learn more if they've got additional questions? I, I guess the easiest way is to navigate to the physics, the Harvard Physics Department website, and then just pull down the faculty links, and that'll take you to my website or uh, my email address, huth, H-U-T-H, at g.harvard.edu or huth at physics.harvard.edu uh, would get to me. Well, I, I like the uh, I like the insertion of navigate in yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We use we use navigate in many different senses too. That's it's it's there's this parallel between how we talk about social things and spatial things. Certainly, and it's 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 a challenge to actually rid yourself of spatial language when you're talking about social things. So, one final question for you. And that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? So I would like to hear Nick Ray. And Nick is, has an interesting story. He's pretty upfront about it. He suffered from depression. And he found that uh, paddling actually lifted him out of it. And currently I'm following him on social media. And he is paddling all around Scotland for 365 days. And he regularly shows up in my social media feed. So I think he'd be an interesting person to hunt down and um, talk with you. All right. Well, I've been following his story as well. So we will certainly reach out to, uh, to Nick and see if we can get him on the show. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. So, John, this has, been, this has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed talking with you about navigation and how uh, that, that all uh, led you to start thinking different about where we are. And we'll certainly hope that our listeners will take an opportunity to look at the book and think different about where they are in the space of the world. Sounds great. Thank you. Yep. Pleasure. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit paddlingexercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. Polynesian wave piloting, Viking sunstones, celestial navigation, birds, ants, telling direction from the horns of the moon, snow waves, and discovering the flat earth theory. All fascinating stuff. I encourage you to pick up John's book. You'll find a link in the show notes for this episode, number 90, at www.paddlingtheblue.com, where you can pick up John's book. You'll also find direct links to reach John and find his website in the show notes as well. Thanks to our partners at Level 6 and Online Sea Kayaking for extending special offers to you. If you'd like to pick up some great Level 6 dryware or other kit, visit their website at level6.com and use the coupon code PTBPODCAST to check out for 10% off your order. Also, visit onlineseakayaking.com and take advantage of the great video programming from James and Simon and other talented guests, including previous guests of Paddling the Blue. So enter the code PTBPODCAST at checkout and get 10% off just for being a member of the Paddling the Blue community. Our next guest is Renata Holumska. 
and she has an incredible history, most in, most in the mountaineering world. And for this episode, she's going to join us to share a combined paddling and cycling trip circumnavigating the United States. We'll talk about the trip and the inspiration to make it happen. So until next time, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.